0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mescouta, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, I have five little kiddos raging in age from 13 down to three. And our first two kids were boys. Our last two were also boys And then stuck there in the middle is the princess of the house, Hattie, our nine-year-old. Now, having boys felt really natural. Well, not, let me pause. Being a parent did not feel natural at all. It still doesn't feel natural. Uh, But having boys was the, the least invasive jump into my life for parenting, I knew how to be rough and tumble. I knew how to play sports and to watch sports and enjoy sports. I could join them in video games. Just about any hobby that they had, I could think to myself, I know this. I know this. This feels familiar. And then I had a little girl. And I have watched every episode of Doc McStuffins and Strawberry Shortcake, known to man. And if you want to just randomly break out into a Disney princess song, I'm going to hit the high harmony. I'm there with you. Actually, I won't hit the high harmony. I may try, but I won't hit it, right? Like there is something that comes out in a dad, no matter how rough and tumble they are, when they have a daughter. There's, there's a different side that you can see, oftentimes only in that moment or in that space. Nowhere else will I allow someone to paint my nails. Nowhere else will I have such detailed discussion about leotards and tutus. But with her, I will. You know, everybody tends to have that that other side, that different side, the side that when people first see you, they wouldn't expect that you have. And yet, Somewhere deep underneath is that different side, right? For Rachel, she can be the most glamorous, glorious, girliest woman in the world, and yet she will take our boys down in a wrestling match like nobody's business. Everybody tends to have that other side. Maybe you work a nine-to-five, and you sit at a desk all day, but you've got a, a secret hobby when it comes to painting, or music, or art. Everybody tends to have that other side, and the truth is that Jesus Jesus had that different side as well. I, I want you to think for a moment of, of any depiction that you've read or seen or watched of jesus maybe perhaps other than the last two or three years right for for the longest time one of the most kind of prototypical christian movies was the passion of the christ and when you think of depictions of jesus you tend to think of him being stoic reserved serious thoughtful, contemplative, authoritative, maybe tender, certainly merciful, and gracious. Well, a couple of years ago, as most of you guys may have known, a new, a new series came out on television called The Chosen. It's a personal favorite in our household, and, and we, when it came out, we watched it with our kiddos. Well, in season one and episode three, there's an episode called Jesus Loves the Little Children. And in the middle of that episode, some children wander uh, upon the the kind of small little camp outside of the town of Capernaum that Jesus is staying in. And they, they kind of wander in and they see Jesus, but they don't think that Jesus knows that they're there. And so Jesus is kind of going about his work and then all of a sudden... He starts making silly noises, right? Something that sounds like you would with a a young kid, like a a raspberry or strawberry. I don't know, some sort of berry noise that we make with our lips. And here's what one of my kids said when Jesus did this in the show. Is Jesus allowed to do that? (laughs) And at first I thought, wait, what? And he was dead serious he was like, is Jesus allowed to make a joke? Is Jesus allowed to be funny and humorous or silly? Is Jesus allowed to be interested in people's enjoyment and fun? And the answer is yes. Today, we're entering into a new mini-series, if you will, in the Gospel of John. Chapters 2 on through 12 are oftentimes called the Book of Signs. John, as he recounts the life and times of Jesus, his ministry here on earth, from chapters 2 to 12, he records seven specific signs. In the other Gospels, they focus on the miracles of Jesus, but for John, he doesn't just want to display the power of Jesus, he wants to show us that Jesus really is who John claims that he is. That Jesus really is the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One that we have waited for. Today, in John chapter 2, from 1 on down through 12, John gives us the first of those seven Signs. It says it right there in verse 11. We read it. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The Greek word here for first doesn't just mean first. It actually comes from a root word that means ruler or king. John is using this to describe the first sign because what he's trying to tell us is it's not just first in the order, it's also first in importance. As if this is the foremost, most significant sign that we will see of Jesus. Now think about that for a second. If you've been a part of the church, you, you know that Jesus throughout his earthly ministry he casts out demons, He gives sight to blind men. He raises people from the dead. And that John decides that this is the foremost. When Jesus saves not a life, but a party, this is perhaps the most significant sign of who Jesus is that the world needs to hear. This morning, as we look at John chapter 2, I I want us to cast our eyes on what John shows us is a quote-unquote different side of Jesus than the stereotypical version we tend to see and hear and talk about within the church. So what do we learn of Jesus at this wedding in Cana of Galilee? Three things. John tells us that Jesus has come to be First, the fulfiller of obligations, the fulfiller of obligations. Second, Jesus came to be the giver of joy, the giver of joy. And finally, Jesus came to be the better bridegroom, the better bridegroom. First, Jesus is the fulfiller of obligations. Having five kids, our house can tend to be a little disorderly. And now, with our youngest entering into preschool, we have all five of them in school at the same time. By the way, our, our like COVID has been bad, but the worst thing that has come out of COVID has been e learning. Okay? Can I get an amen? Okay, thank you. Hallelujah. Right? All of a sudden, y'all can get charismatic when we start talking about e learning. <laughs> don't make me go to Common Core Math, because it'll be a revival up in this mug, all right? Yeah, e-learning is terrible. First of all, we had snow days this winter, and our kids had to still learn, which I didn't, I thought that was illegal. But we have five kids, including a kindergartner and all the way on up to a 13-year-old, and when we try and do e-learning, it is chaos. But it's not just e-learning, homework, and just kind of tracking our kids' school works, those magic purple folders that are filled with 800 pages if your kids are in the Muscoota School District. like We try our best to keep on top of homework and projects and tests and everything else, and inevitably we fail. And so I have found myself this year specifically, on any given school day morning, saying something like this to our kids, Did I ask you if you had homework? Did you do your homework? And one of the kids will go, no and they'll pull it out and and of course like it'll be some like oh just do these 800 multiplication problems and so are any of our teachers here okay well you just plug your ears so sometimes dad will do the homework for them okay don't worry it's still in their handwriting but we'll just go through and I'll be like, 8, 18, 21, 24. Come on, write it. We got five minutes or else I have to check you in as tardy. Right? And, and, and the core of the, the, the matter is I don't want my kids to fail. I don't want my kids to have to walk into class and not have their homework done. And yes, yes, I know it's important for them to learn personal responsibility and, you know, things like this. They're going to deal with that in the future and they'll learn to fail when they're adults, okay? But oftentimes, believe it or not, my desire comes from a good place, right? I understand the world that my kids exist in. They exist in a big family where mom and dad are trying to do crazy things like raise children, renovate a house, and plant a church. And so sometimes life is a little less than organized, and so it is my joy and honor to step in sometimes and help and actually even fulfill their obligations. Jesus does something oddly similar here in our passage today. We're told in verses 1-2 to that Jesus and his mother are invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Cana would have been probably about eight miles or so northeast of Nazareth which is where Jesus and Mary and Joseph were originally from. This means a couple of things. First and foremost, it's likely that this was either a family relative or an extremely close family friend. Oftentimes, weddings during that period of time would have been primarily communal. The community was invited into weddings. The community was invited into funerals. And so those that traveled would have traveled because of close personal relationships. And so Jesus and Mary, and we're also told his disciples, show up at this wedding. Now we're told in verse 3 that the wine at this wedding runs out. Now weddings in the ancient world were, believe it or not, a bigger deal than they are today. They lasted from a few days to an entire week. And somewhere after the first day of the wedding, the first day of the party, the wine runs out. And Mary comes to Joseph, or I'm sorry, Mary comes to Jesus. And she says simply this in verse 3, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. No specific request, just a statement to Jesus. Jesus, they have no more wine. Now at this point in time, we don't know that Jesus has performed any miracles. We're not told that that Mary has any sort of insight beyond what the angel had told her before the birth of the great power that Jesus will begin to display starting here in chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. It's likely that she's simply coming as a mother who cares about this wedding to a son who she knows is resourceful, certainly smart, diligent, and cares. And so she brings the problem to Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He turns to his mother and he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. First of all, children hear in attendance. Here's your pastor's tip for you today. If your mom makes a request of you, you are not Jesus. So do not respond, woman. What does this have to do with me? Because she will show you what it has to do with you. Right? If you, if you have the, the NIV translation, uh, they, they've tried to soften it. I think the NIV says, dear woman, but there is no dear, and that's still not going to soften it far enough, right? Jesus is not trying to be rude to Mary. He's trying to reframe what's going on here. Okay? Mary has come as a mother to a son for help. And Jesus is reorienting the problem. He is instead inviting Mary not to come to her son for earthly help. But he is inviting Mary to come to the Son of Man. The Savior for miraculous help. And we know this because what happens next? Jesus says to Mary what sounds at first to say, hey, this isn't on me. I'm not going to help. But what does he do next? He helps. And we also get this because when Jesus says to Mary, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour for glory. He's pointing us forward to the hour that He would be most glorified, with which is His death on the cross. Mary responds how? She looks at the servants and she says, do whatever He tells you. She knows Jesus. And when Jesus hints at her that what she needs is not a mother's trust in her Son, but a disciple's trust in their Savior. Mary has it. Incidentally, as an aside, this is clearly the type of response that you have when you live intimately close with Jesus. Even when He appears to say no, You still expect that he's going to do something wonderful. Gosh, when that hit me as I looked at this passage, I asked myself the question God, when you say no to me, is my immediate reaction, that's all right, you're going to do something better than I think? Because this woman who has lived closely with Jesus, that's what she expects. Perhaps she thought that Jesus was going to go out and procure just a little bit more wine or have a clever solution to try and stretch what little they had left. But after Jesus' response to her, I think it's safe to say that Mary thought this is going to be good. Jesus is about to do something wonderful, and He does. Jesus produces miraculous wine. But Jesus doesn't just produce wine, as a good friend or good family member would. He produces wine that should have been supplied by the bridegroom and his family. It was their responsibility to pull off this wedding. And running out of wine at a wedding is not just a party foul. It would have brought shame upon the family and the bridegroom. But Jesus uses his first recorded miracle to produce wine at a wedding party, to help to avoid shame for a nameless, faceless bridegroom and family. Jesus fulfills their obligations to the party. Jesus meets their expectations, or the expectations that were for them. And I need you to hear this. This is not a one-off. This is at the core of who Jesus is and what it means to belong to Him. We announced a couple of weeks ago that Mercy's Door is multiplying, that we are going to be planting another church and that Rachel and I are going to be sent out to plant that church. We have been spending a lot of time over the last several weeks getting our house ready to go on the market. Now, the only problem with that is we bought that house with the intention of renovating it from top to bottom. And we're somewhere in between 20 and 80 percent done. Okay? Just depends on the day. And so over the last several weeks, what I've been doing is spending just about every spare moment I have swinging hammers, painting, and constructing and reconstructing half the house that we had already tore apart. I've got an incredibly long, what I call, punch list, a list of all the things that I need to do. Most of us live our lives as Christ followers with punch lists. Most of us have a long list of things that we must fulfill, that are on our shoulders, that we must complete and we will be judged on. I need you to hear this. The Gospel says that Jesus has fulfilled our obligations, that we no longer live in order to complete what is lacking, because what He gives us is fully sufficient. Psalm 23, one of the most famous psalms, says the Lord is my shepherd, and the ESV translation is I shall not want. A more direct translation is the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Quick Hebrew word study. That word nothing translates more or less to Nothing. It's complete. Think about this for a second. All the ways that Jesus fulfills the obligations that we have. Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived but did not live. Jesus died the death that is the just result of sin that he did not commit but we committed. Jesus, we're told, fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law and then credited that righteousness to us. Jesus took on the fullness of the curse that was given to us at the fall so that we could enter back into Eden, the very presence of God. Jesus, in his perfection, earned eternal glory with the Father, but Ephesians chapter 2 says that God has placed us in heaven with him. Jesus defeated Satan, earning his place as victorious king, but now freely welcomes us in to share in his victory. Jesus was the perfect child, Jesus was the perfect friend. He was the perfect worshiper. The perfect citizen. The perfect human. And yet, He who knew no sin became sin so that we would become the full righteousness of God. He fulfills our obligation. Jesus joyfully brings The wine, when the wine runs out. And yet we feel this constant need to meet expectations, to fulfill obligations, to earn our way in this world and before God, but like the nameless groom who utterly fails to meet his expectations. And yet, how does the night end for him? He is praised for his generosity and the provision of the most delicious wine. And we too are invited not to strive, but instead to live out of the perfect sufficiency of Jesus. He is the fulfiller of our obligations. He's also the giver of joy. Weddings in ancient Israel weren't just long. They were also a really big deal in a big gift both to those in attendance as well as to the bride and groom. For those in attendance, they got good food and good wine for up to a week utterly for free. And for the bride and the groom, it literally was a fairy tale week. They were legitimately treated like royalty during that week, like a king or queen or prince or princess. People would come to their homes and they would pay them visits. They would sing praises of their love and their future prospects and their union would be celebrated by the entire community that they lived in. Think about this. This was a people that lived their lives in the midst of captivity. That oftentimes and typically for most people lived their life in poverty. Barely surviving, barely making ends meet. And yet for one week out of their entire life, they lived as if everything was right. C.S. Lewis, you guys have heard me mention him, oh, I don't know, a couple million times. Was obsessed with one word throughout his life. It was a German word, Sehnsucht which means something that is like deep longing. The the word literally means something deep inside us that we don't just want, but somehow we know we were made for it. And yet it always feels just a fraction out of our grasp. We can't quite seem to get at it. Weddings and celebrations and parties are a symbol of this longing, right? They're they're moments in our life of joy and laughter and light that we desire, that we seem to be made for, like we we come alive in those moments, and yet they're just glimpses and they don't last. See, all of us still have a built-in homesickness for paradise, for God's presence, for a world without darkness, and yet We don't live that way. Jesus, in His miracle, He doesn't just provide some wine. He provides the best wine. He doesn't just keep the party going for a few more days. He enhances and extends and increases the joy that they are all experiencing in that moment. When He makes water into wine, it's so good that it made the good wine that the wedding had already been served look cheap. And wine in the ancient world was a symbol of revelry and enjoyment and merriment. To put it another way, Jesus brings the good stuff to the party. He's the one that you want there. He brings the fun. Let me just cut to the chase. Jesus is for our joy. He desires smiles on our faces and contentment in our hearts. The stoic, only serious Christian is not a biblical Christian. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, their first question says this, what is the chief end of man? what are you made for? And the answer to glorify God, right? Most, most churches go, yeah, uh uh-huh. I get that one. That's right. You know what the second half is? And enjoy him forever. Don't trust the Presbyterians? No worries. Here's what scripture says. Nehemiah chapter eight. Okay. If you don't know where Nehemiah is, it's in the old Testament. already where we assume the angry, stoic God is. And by the way, it primarily has to do with building a wall. I've been doing a lot of renovation, not where I expect verses about joy to come from. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions out to anyone who has nothing ready, for the day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Jesus himself says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. Why? that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, complete. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. John 16, until now, Jesus said, you have asked nothing in my name, but ask, you will receive, and your joy will be full. Let me ask you, Christ follower, how is your joy? How is your joy as a disciple of Jesus? How is your joy as a beloved son of your heavenly Father? And lest you think that joy is biblical but simply a minor category, look at the details that John includes about how Jesus produces the wine. It says this in verse 6, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So let's say up to 150-ish gallons total. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars. Fill them to the brim with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. In order to produce the wine, Jesus uses these ceremonial stone jars. These jars would be filled with water, and then they would be used for Jewish rites of cleansing. Right. So before you went into the temple or the synagogue, you would have to wash hands, head, feet, etc. as an outward symbol that we're dirty and we need to be cleaned. Jesus uses these ritual jars, and he fills them with wine. Jesus is pointing us forward to how we will get this festival joy by turning symbolic water used to cleanse us into new wine that would forever cleanse us. And on the night that he is betrayed, Jesus takes the cup filled with wine and says, this wine is my blood shed for your salvation. And put it another way, Jesus is so for your joy that he dies for it. He's so for your contentment, your fullness, your joy. And by the way, when you hear Christians say this Jesus is for joy, not happiness. It says joy. Yeah, well, guess what? There aren't two words in the Greek for joy and happiness. There's one. Right? We do that because we're so scared of being happy, people feel like, gosh, if Christians are happy, they're going to go out and just do crazy, you know, debauchery and sin. And No, you won't. You know what you'll be when you're happy? You'll be fascinated in awe of enthralled with Jesus. He is for our eternal joy. As Tim Keller puts it, He is the Lord of wine and the true master of the feast and He intends for us to enter into His banquet. Jesus is the fulfiller of obligations. He is the giver of joy and finally He's the better bridegroom. You know, I've always found it interesting that weddings and celebrations like them are such a common theme in the ministry of Jesus. Right? His his ministry here in the Gospel of John starts at a wedding. Jesus is constantly telling parables and stories that includes brides and bridegrooms. At other times, he tells stories and parables that teaches who we should and should not invite to a celebration like a wedding. And yet, for all of the wedding talk, Jesus is not married. And this isn't an incidental detail. It's purposeful. Jesus is not married in this time while He is on earth because He is awaiting His perfect wedding to His spotless bride, which is the church. Luke chapter 5 says this, And they said to Him, to Jesus. The disciples of John fast often. They offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But your disciples, they eat and drink. They celebrate. And Jesus said, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says, for I am jealous for you writing to the church. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you, I promised you, I engaged you to one husband so that Christ will be presented with you, a pure virgin. Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved His bride, the church, and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And Revelation, the end times, what we look forward to. The angels sing, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb. Jesus has come and His bride has made herself ready. For all Christ followers, we are destined for a marriage and wedding in the new heavens and new earth that is far better than anything we will ever experience here on earth. And Jesus introduces himself in his first sign as the one that we are waiting for. Rachel and I, when we met, we met in June. We got engaged in September. And we got married in December. I was really scared she would come to her senses and figure out she could do way better. So I was, why do we need to wait? Let's just get married right now. All right, we got engaged in September and we got married in December. And those three months, I swear, felt like the longest three months of my life. I was down in Texas, she was up here in St. Louis. Came back up for the week before our wedding. That week felt like it took a year, and then the night before our wedding felt like it lasted for an eternity. It felt like it took forever. And yet, every time we would talk on the phone during those three months, or we would get together and I'd come home to visit, we were constantly talking about wedding plans. Constantly talking about what marriage would be like after the wedding. Constantly looking forward. But we don't live that way as Christ followers. The chief sign of Jesus was that he was the better bridegroom. The one who would literally throw the celebration and wedding to end all celebrations and weddings. And yet, what do we talk about? What do we anticipate? A basketball tournament? A weekend cookout? A vacation that will equal as much stress as it ever will pleasure? What? Why are our thoughts, our plans, our anticipations not directed towards the One that we have been promised to? The One who will finally fulfill all of those longings that we have? It's either A, because you haven't heard this promise before. And if that's the case, then shame on the church that they haven't given it to you. Or B, like me, you've heard it, but you struggle to believe it. Because you've either convinced yourself that you'll find that fulfillment on this side of eternity. Or you've come to despair and you've believed that you'll just never find it. But Jesus is the true and better bridegroom. He's the one that we are waiting for. Listen, we love to use phrases like glass half empty and glass half full. People accuse me of being a glass half empty kind of guy. And I like to retort, it doesn't really matter because either way, the glass ain't full. You can say whatever you want. Somebody drank half the glass. Right? Like, that's the truth. You can be as positive as you want to be. You can describe it however cheerfully you want. But the truth of the matter is, this life, this world, is half empty. And if it's half full, that just means it's missing half. George Harrison, one of the Beatles... That used to be a really easy reference, but apparently now that's like saying George Washington, one of the first presidents. George Harrison was one time uh, in, later in life, he was, he was interviewed, and uh, this interviewer was, I think, in awe of George Harrison, and, and he was like, what's it like to be you? What's it like to have all the money you could ever want and all the fame you could ever want? What's it like to be able to travel anywhere you want, to, to, have, you know, to get any girl that you want? What's it like? And George Harrison paused and he looked at him and he said, I have but one response. Is that it? Is this it? I've gone anywhere I wanted. I've done anything I wanted to do. And all I can say is, is this it? And the answer is, Jesus, with His first sign, and the Gospel writer John yells at the top of His lungs, No! It's not! It's not it! Your marriage is not it. It won't fulfill. Your spouse will not, Jerry Maguire, complete you. There's been 13 iPhones because the last 12 haven't completed you. Right? Like, there's a reason why garage sales are a thing. Because we get new stuff to replace stuff we already have that haven't fulfilled us. This is how we live our life. And Jesus stands up at the beginning of His ministry and He says, Look at Me. I will complete the work that you have. I will bring you joy. And you will come and be Mine forevermore. It's what you were made for. And so here's my only request, church, because I really struggle to believe this. Will you pray for me that I would believe it as much as I will pray for you that you will believe it? He is that good. He is for our joy and we were made for him. And so let's pray and ask that God would give us the faith to believe it. Pray with me.